we realized quite early on that with VC money comes a whole lot of responsibilities and commitments that we knew we weren't able to, to take on. And what it allowed for us was to grow at our pace rather than the timeline of a VC's funds pace. And it allowed us to be goofy and silly and cheeky and, and a little bit crazy. And we didn't have to worry whether that impacted our growth by 3% this month or not. My name is Noah Omri Levin. You're listening to Digital Marketing Life, my podcast giving you access to the real life experiences, challenges, and triumphs of the incredible people across our industry. Dean Levitt is probably one of the most fun people to talk to. His friendly smile is almost as big as his beard, but neither can compete with his love for people. It is that love for humanity that has driven his incredibly successful, customer-focused career as a co-founder of Mad Mimi, the email platform that GoDaddy acquired in 2014, and now as a resident of the startup nation here in Israel, where he is working on a very exciting new project, which you'll hear about towards the end of this episode. Enjoy. Hello, Dean Levitt. Thank you so much for joining Digital Marketing Life today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. Amazing. So I want to jump right in because today you are working on a new startup out of Israel in the event planning industry. I want to hear about that. But before we get into it, you've had a really colorful background, leading culture at Mad Mimi, and then online support at GoDaddy. How did you get into the world of startups and why? So I, I took a very circuitous route to get into startups. And, and I'd say I rather fell and stumbled blindly into startups rather than actually choosing to. Uh, initially, I was a starving artist, a broke jazz musician who uh, occasionally played the odd gig. And most of my money came from where most musicians make their money from is waiting tables and bartending and the service industry. So I had decided to start a music production company with my brother and we wrote jingles or background music, which, which was really like a terrible industry to be in at the time when everyone has home, uh, home studios and we recorded stuff out of our bedrooms, but the, we made no money doing it. We do a demo for 300 bucks and spend 800 bucks recording it and then wait six months for the, for the ad agency to give us the demo fee and then they pick some pop song. And so we had this idea, my brother and I, we, we were in a band together and we thought, oh, well, let's, let's make an app together that, that will help musicians book gigs because we also struggled to book gigs and we just kind of started designing it and working on the idea. And then we raised a tiny, tiny bit of money from friends and family and began building the app and ran out of money. And what we had was this little email system that we had blown all our money on building, not the other 20 features. And, and that became Mad Mimi and suddenly I, I was in the tech world. Wow. Wait, so you accidentally developed Mad Mimi as like a secondary product within. And how, when you ran out of money and then saw that you had this tool, well, just go into that moment for a second. Like, how did you decide to, did you raise more money to reinvest in that thing? Did you see that it was working well? What, what was that process like? Sure. So what happened because my brother and I were non-technical founders, so we we couldn't write the code ourselves. What we had done is hired a consultancy to write code, and there's there's some interesting pros and cons between hiring with hiring consultancies or hiring in-house or learning to code. But it got us moving really quickly with this consultancy, and they were friends. the The lead developer over there at that consultancy was friends with a guy called Jeff Patton. He helped and still to this day, helps businesses really kind of plot out what a good product should be. And as a favor to Dave, the, the engineer at the consultancy, he came over and he 
did a, a user story map of everything we built so far. And he said, you guys have an email marketing application here. Your choices are shut down, raise more money or launch. And uh, to my brother's credit, he, he said, let's launch and let's see. And we, we got some early customers very quickly. I mean, it's a little bit of a hard thing to admit, but because spammers are so desperate to get to, to use email marketing applications, they've been kicked off of MailChimp and Constant Contact. We got a few hundred dollars like on day two from some spammer. We kicked him off immediately, but <laughs> he forfeited his cash, right? So uh, that was a lesson is um, 90% of our work for that first year is preventing spammers from sneaking through. But yeah. it took off relatively quickly and, and we shrank our costs. Uh, my brother moved in with his in-laws. My girlfriend, who, who is now my wife, paid our rent and, and supported me and we had no office. We worked from home and our, our costs were like peanuts. Wow. Amazing. Wow. So, and then, and then you grew that into a product that, tell us what happened there and, and, and then how you moved on to, to the world of GoDaddy. Sure. So initially when we launched Mad Mimi, it was super, super, super slimmed down we could do a, a really basic email design. You couldn't even choose your font size or your font colors or, or a font or uh, there was like no, no design elements, which, which was unique at the time for uh, email marketing programs. And we had just really bare bones audience management side of things. And, and that turned out to be enough. It was 2008 and a whole lot of people lost their jobs just like leading into the, the, the big crash. And oddly enough, it was a time when a lot of micro business, a lot of people decided to create micro businesses. They, they started to say, well, I've been laid off. doesn't look like I'm getting a job in, in any mid-size or large company anytime soon. I may as well start my passion projects. I'm going to go be a photographer or a nutritionist or, or a puppeteer. And we, we're the only email marketing company priced for these kind of people that was also so simple to use. We didn't have A-B testing and in-depth analytics and just this, this depth of complexity that mid-sized companies needed where MailChimp and Constant Contact were. We just sort of fell into this niche of micro-businesses and we were priced appropriately and we grew with our customers. Once we initially had that traction, we realized a couple of things. One is that our free accounts, and we offered very aggressive free plans. They all had a powered by Mad Mimi at the bottom. And so it spread because if you're a photographer getting an email newsletter from another photographer, you check out how they did it. And if you look at email marketing in general, you had constant contact, which was really like stiff and enterprisey and you had MailChimp that was expensive and sarcastic. And then you had us. We, it was two or three people. We, we were super casual, super informal, and our users promoted us. And so we grew and grew and grew. Luckily, we, we retained this fun culture. And eventually, at around 250,000 users, that's not, not all paid users, a decent, uh, decent size, GoDaddy approached us. and. One of the things that we learned in the midst of the, the whole acquisition, they, they didn't need us. I, we were probably one of the smallest companies out there, so relative, like MailChimp, I think it had two, 2 million users at the time to our 250,000 to give you a sense of scale. But our customers were the same kind of customers that GoDaddy had with the, the small businesses, get your idea, take, it, take your idea from, from, from nothing to live we had a passionate user base and I credit that passionate user base for really being the driving, uh, driving signal to GoDaddy that they should acquire us and not one of our competitors. That's amazing. Okay. So we're going to come back to that in a minute, but then you joined GoDaddy and you were in the world of online support. So what was that experience like going from Mad Mimi to Go GoDaddy? Sure. So at Mad Mimi, my role was chief of culture, which is a, I think it's a little bit of an affectation, I guess, but it meant I dealt with anything 
customer facing. So our marketing, our customer support, we didn't really do much in, in proper traditional paid marketing or even new paid marketing. A large part of what I did was obsessing about customers. So when I switched to GoDaddy and I became director of customer support, I try to retain the exact same thing. So the adjustment was tough in that GoDaddy's support was all phone and our support at Mad Mimi was all live chat and uh, live chat as in instant messenger and email. Our email support was, was about five minute average response time and that's where 90% of our support happened. And all in all, the, the adjustment took a, took a lot of time for me to really emotionally adjust to the fact that no one, no one else in the company initially got it. They, they didn't really understand how email support or, or even like chat support could really work. Now, now they crush and GoDaddy to the credit was super open to letting us prove that you could do it this way. And, and so in, in some regard, it was GoDaddy was really patient with us. In another regard, it required a lot of adjustment on my part to, to, understand how, how my colleagues in GoDaddy would view support. And ultimately we ended up keeping my team under the product, not the support team, not the support department. Got it. Wow. It, were you in a different department than your actual company? Oh no. So when, when GoDaddy acquired Mad Mimi, our two tasks were keep Mad Mimi going and create GoDaddy email marketing. And so my team effectively did both simultaneously. And so I actually remained chief of culture at Mad Mimi and also became uh, a director of customer support, wow. specifically focused on GoDaddy email marketing. Wow. wow. Was that a hard, hard uh, balance between the two or were they seamless? I loved it. I, it wasn't that hard simply because it was mostly seamless and my team was amazing. Everyone on the team was super efficient and we had, we'd had really steady growth for eight or nine years. And, and so our team was very scalable. Our process was very scalable. I think our biggest, our biggest issue was training GoDaddy customers what that have to support all of GoDaddy suites of tools on how to sell and support MadMe because people pick up the phone and call GoDaddy support. So we had to develop a lot of systems around maintaining our quality of support, which had a through the roof NPS score and make sure that that didn't suffer at all while suddenly encompassing thousands of new customer support agents that have to talk intelligently about a product that they haven't gone through my hundred hours of training on. 100%. Wow. That's, that's incredibly challenging. So, so I, let's come back to, to Mad Mimi a little bit. In terms of when we last spoke, you, you also mentioned the importance of growing a startup organically without VC funding. Uh, and that's, that's essentially what it sounds like you did here. So let's talk about what, what were the benefits of that approach for you? It's kind of funny. In our first few months of Mad Mimi after we launched, we actually got approached by a VC that had invested in one of our competitors. Not a very famous competitor, but they were a very corporate -y competitor. They, they focused on, on enterprise. And Gary, my brother, said, thank you, but we're not going to sell our souls to you. And, and they got real offended. And it ended up in this big argument over email where, where they sent us a whole lot of of really how dare you type of emails. But in the end, it was, it was definitely the right, the right choice. The, the, we realized quite early on that with VC money comes a whole lot of responsibilities and commitments that we knew we weren't able to, to take on. And what it allowed for us was to grow at our pace rather than the timeline of a VC's funds pace. And it allowed us to be goofy and silly and cheeky and, and a little bit crazy. And we didn't have to worry whether that impacted our growth by 3% this month or not. And it, it turned out to us, for us to be probably a pivotal moment is 
when I did all our tweets, every hour I set an alarm, I tweeted out something as weird as I could, I, whatever weirdness I could think of. And I would take quotes from famous people and, and gobble them up and add email marketing in them, like um, a Marilyn Monroe quote or an Einstein quote and, or an or TV ads quote or something. And, and some of our tweets caught the attention of a developer who works with Seth Godin, who is a, an amazing business leader. And the, the developer retweeted it and he showed it to Seth Godin or Seth Godin saw it. And he heard about Mad Mimi and he mentioned us in one throwaway post that was probably 150 words long. He wrote email marketing companies like MailChimp and Mad Mimi. And we got a sign up every few seconds for the next three days. And <laughs> This happened roughly about a year in, but it all came from the fact that we could be as silly and weird as we want. That's, that's what he, he saw. He saw an ad where I said something like nine out of 10 cats prefer Mad Mimi email marketing. Like, like idiotic, nonsensical, but because there was no board breathing down our neck, because there was no pressures, we could just be ourselves. That makes so much sense. And if you think about like timing in terms of today, like so many folks are trying to do that. But back then, I imagine that was very unique. And even today, like it, it can work really well uh, if, if, if somebody really embraces a, a, almost like a combination of humility with that playfulness. For sure. Today it can work a whole lot easier in many ways because the cost of bootstrapping has gone down. Back then, the cost of servers, I mean, even it was what, like 15 years ago now, or, or roughly about 12 years ago, the, the cost of servers, we had to have specialist servers for Rails and um, a host. Now you can just plug in Heroku and scale as you want. No $50,000 a month guaranteed contract minimums and, and stuff like that. So you can bootstrap better now and, and you, can, you can grow faster now. You can market eat cheaper now which means if you do ever make that commitment to take VC money, you can do it from a far greater position of strength. That's incredible. Okay, thank you for sharing all this. It's so much fun to hear. So let's get into the service side of the business. You also mentioned when we spoke, uh, instead of growing with a VC, growth should be driven by great customer service. So it's very obvious just from having talked to you a few times now that you love people. Um, so I can see how you'd be really good for these roles, but I'd love to hear for all of us, how do you create a culture of great customer service that drives growth? What does that look like? Sure. I, <laughs> I love this question and I'm, I'm hesitating a slightly because it, it can open up a, a, I could talk for hours on it. So I'm, I'm trying to think of an efficient way to start, but I guess the first, the first lesson that most companies need to learn is that you can't outsource to you can't outsource empathetic customer support to a a two dollar an hour or three dollar hour person across the world who doesn't share a culture with your customers. So if there's one lesson of great customer service, it's that you have to build your support team from your customer base. Your support people need to need to be culturally aligned, need to empathize and need to be who your customers are. And I didn't come up with this, this philosophy on my own. It, it happened by a complete fluke in that we hired our, our first customer support rep from our customer base. She had noticed that it was only two of us at Mad Mimi and we were working around the clock. We'd, we'd work 16 hour days and then every hour throughout the night, we'd set alarms to wake up so we wouldn't miss anything. And she noticed that on the on on weekends, on especially on Shabbos, um, there was no support. So she offered to do customer support. Wow! Because my brother is is an observant Jew, and basically we said, "Fine, we're not going to work on the Sabbath." So she offered, and she was based in Wisconsin. She was. I think in her 60s and she had a couple of little online business ventures like a little web design company and she used us and she started doing our support and and then she eventually became our CFO and, and we worked together until the the exit and and it turned out to be amazing amazing progression for everyone but 
our next customer support reps were musicians that used us, two of them, one actor, one musician, and they were using Mad Mimi to send out their, their newsletters. So most of our early hiring came from our company, come, came from our, our customers. And then we realized, fine, we need to hire people who, who have been entrepreneurial at the micro business level, like we were, people who had started their own little music production company, like I had, or people that were the puppeteers or photographers. So we hired people who understood and empathized. The second aspect of great customer support is brutal training, <laughs> basically. Um, you, can't, you can't train someone by saying shadow this guy or, or shadow her and, and just learn. You have, to, you have to really train over a long time in tiny bite-sized uh, methods. And this, this method we, we knew early on we were going to follow because both Gary and I worked in an amazing restaurant in New York called the Blue Ribbon. And this is how they trained us. For, for three days on 16-hour shifts, we filled water only. That's all we did. But it taught us how to really loop around the restaurant. It taught us how to count the, the amount of um, whatever muscles that were still on the plate that, so you'd know where, roughly how soon the chef needed to prepare their next meal. And so we followed this process where we, we took about 100 hours and we in, introduced any new trainee only to tiny, tiny fragments of their overall job. And we hammered it in until it became boring. Once it was boring, it could be super easy. Wow. Um, and then the third aspect is empower them. The, the customer support team has to be empowered to solve issues themselves. So if someone wrote in and said, this really sucks, I'm super upset with you, and the support rep felt that giving them a month or two free was uh, an appropriate response, we let them do it without second guessing them. If a customer was rude, we let our support reps choose not to deal with them because Customers are great, but retaining people who loved our customers was also great. So we made sure that I only handled the, the worst, angriest in issues. So my team was empowered to, to make decisions on their own, and they didn't have a, a lousy work experience. That last piece is unbelievable. So you're saying, um, you're saying that when you had a bad customer for the sake of your customer support person, you would say, send that person to me and they'll be my responsibility for the purpose of in empowering your customer support person to love their job. hundred percent. We, we did two things really. One is I would take the, anyone that was just furious, I would handle them and Two, if someone was abusive, we fired them as a customer. So we, it didn't happen often. I, mean, I can probably count about uh, one or two times a year that this happened and with hundreds of thousands of, of instances with customer support, it's not a lot. For the most part, everyone was super lovely to our customer support people. But yeah, it makes a big difference when customer support isn't a punching bag and considering how much we invested in our team, in choosing them, in training them, in appreciating how amazing they were to, to my customers. Like my customer support team was gold to me. And so it's absolutely worth being a distraction for me to work with these customers. And, and there's another bonus, is that when a furious customer gets to talk to the owner of the business, they feel heard. And, and often a furious customer is not furious because they're a jerk. They're furious because there's some unaddressed issue that, that needs to be addressed. And sometimes that unaddressed issue is in their personal life and I can't help with it. But what I can always do is be empathetic and, and listen and, and work with them to solve it. You, you're just an incredibly... Uh wise person this is like a lot of amazing things here um because i can only imagine what it feels like i I'm actually that's not true i can definitely imagine what it feels like to work for a company like that because i know one of the first things that happened 
in my current employer at Search Discovery was that we had a client that was very difficult. Our president, the owner of the company, fired the client after we, you know, he asking us what had happened. We explained it, and then he fired the client. And I think everybody on the team was like, we all came from big agency backgrounds. Like that would have never happened. It would have never happened. But in a private company where he has full control to make those decisions, he's able to say, look, it's more important for my people to thrive than it is for this client one time, you know, to, to stay on board, even if it's a decent chunk of the business. That's really incredible. So just speaking another another piece on this, because you mentioned taking the day off. I can only imagine for you and your brother, when you were just you two, how grueling that would have been had you not taken that day off. I can't imagine waking up one hour a night, like every hour throughout the night. How did you get through that period of time in a healthy way? Well, um, I'm not so sure it was super healthy, but I think there was there was a significant degree of desperation. My brother had uh, a kid to support and a second one on the way, and we we admired the success of the Blue Ribbon, where we had both been been um, busboys, not even waiters there, and we we thought, okay, well they obsessed over their clients, and we should do it too. And so for us, it was. Like we felt hardcore. It felt like an adventure. It didn't feel like grueling, awful work because the thing is, is that if we woke up at three in the morning and there was a customer to respond to, it was like, yeah, there's a customer. Hooray. <laughs> this, is the, this is great. And um, we also had a background of hustling when we, when we made music for, for TV and, and radio. Often we would get about a 12 to 20 hour turnaround. So we get a call from a company in LA that, that needed a, a demo by 9 a.m. tomorrow. Now it's already six o'clock. So we would, have to, we would have to make music. And this is, again, the, the, the stuff you could do in a home studio was nowhere near the quality as it is today. So we'd have to go out and find a bluegrass band at midnight <laughs> and bring them to my bedroom and record them in my bedroom and then I'd have to stay up all night and mix and edit and and do just <laughs> really turn it into an amazing piece but these again we they felt like adventures to us so we retained that energy when we had to do that with Mad Mimi because we had no real break between it so uh, it it was fun I to be honest it, it was really really fun that's awesome oh my gosh I could ask you a million more questions but Let's move on. I want to hear about what you're doing now. So today you're working on Timebase, a platform to revolutionize how event planners manage their work streams. So how are you implementing this approach of organic customer service-led growth on this venture that you're working on now? Sure. So I think that the key thing here is that it actually took me a little bit of, of time to, to get this right. Initially, I had the idea, like, oh, cool, got a big idea. I'm going to build this and event planners and event professionals like photographers are going to love it. And then I realized like, what do I know? I, I need to be far more empathetic. And, and sure, we have someone on our team who's an amazing event planner and we've got a, we've got a, great, a great team. But what I did is I said, you know what, I'm going to throw away what I think the solution is. And I'm only going to focus on what I know the problem is. And so I heard from planners, we talked to a lot of planners that their problem was customers were often, or clients are often indecisive. And when you paid a fixed fee for something that's 18 months or two years down the line, like a wedding, every additional workload is basically sucking away your margins. So I talked to them and they go, oh yeah, productivity, tools, whatever, like great. And I'd say, what is the hardest part of your job? What is the part of your job that drives you crazy? And I had to phrase it tons of different ways to get answers. I, I talked to a plan. I go, um, what did you do this week that, that was frustrating? What did you do that was tedious? Think back to the last hour before we spoke. What did you actually do? And they're like, ah, oh, client made this change. Now I have to do all these things. And so 
by focusing only on the problems of the customers and then thinking, okay, well, how can we solve it? Not the way I think I can solve it, but how can I actually solve the problem? I think it's the same approach to customer support is how can you be empathetic with people and not try to, to, to say, this is how your problems will be solved. More a case of how can I fit in a solution into your life that feels like it's making your life better rather than feels like I'm now adding another login to your life and another place where you need to go do things. And that doesn't feel like a chore. That feels like a genuine help. Amazing. Is there anything in particular uh, that you're comfortable sharing that you're excited about building into this platform or that you've put in? Sure. I, I'm, I'm more than happy to chat. I, I'm of the belief to, to, to not answer your question first, but to talk about startups a little bit. Ideas are, are worthless, in my opinion. It's, it's execution that's everything. So I'm, I'm happy to, to share what we're doing. So we'll talk about indecisive, indecisive clients. And, and this was a big epiphany that hit us. And, and luckily, my partner, Dave, was the one who said, he's like, forget what we're building. Only f- let's only talk for the next three months with planners and figure out what the problem is. And yeah, we heard this phrase from so many planners. So like, what's the hardest part of planning a wedding? Oh, indecisive clients, ha, ha, ha. There's nothing you can do about that. And they're right. I can't do anything about indecisive clients, but what I can do is lessen the impact of that indecision. There's a very, very small, simple thing that you can do to, to lessen the impact of a change is you make it easy when you're a planner, you have to deal with 20, 30 people per an event and you move the ceremony back by half an hour, you've got to update hair and makeup, the photographer, the bridal party, which is maybe eight people, the mother-in-law, the mother of the bride, the groom. Well, why not, why not make that automated? I mean, I've got an email background. I, I can, you know, you can take, you can take something that sucks and say, okay, well, what does it mean? It's a, it's an amazing question is, well, when this happens, what do you do? They go, well, I have to email 20 people. Okay, well, let me email 20 people. Wow. So you, are you, you're basically in, integrating some type of like almost agenda Gantt type system where it's allowing the people who are impacted by a decision to be informed of that decision. Pretty much, it's beautifully put. I should, I should write that down and, and yeah. <laughs> it'll, be yes, in the, oh. it'll be in the podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's, it's exactly what we, I mean, we're, we're building what would be a relatively standard project management tool that takes into account some of the specifics of an event, like location, duration of a specific event, and then working on making sure that that yes, when you actually have to deal with large groups of people, the changes and the impact and the information sharing is seamless. So yeah, so if there's a change, if there's an update, if there's something that's assigned, just, just let everyone know without, without a change. One, one beautiful example we had with one of the planners we speak, we speak to planners every single week. We, we created a board where we just throw ideas at them and see what they think. Uh, one I was talking to, she said, oh, after this, uh, I have a corporate client and we've moved uh, the, the start of the event back by half an hour. I have to send 40 emails because we have 20 sponsors and two people in each, in each company. And it just was like, well, that's super easy. Why, just, why don't you just tell me that you've moved the time and we'll email 40 people. So it's not, it's not, brand new technology that's going to blow blow the world apart with brand new algorithms it's it's just really thinking okay well how can i make someone's life half an hour easier this week half an hour more pleasant or give them back that half an hour so this is just my own personal curiosity but have you considered interface like a visualization for all of those different parties to be able to access as things get updated Yes, so that's that's in the works. So there's a, a public a public facing timeline that everyone has any any information they need about things that auto updates, alerts them when it updates. So that's that's all in the works. I think we're probably three months from getting to that point. We should be live in about a month. 
with uh, with our MVP and, and just the basic bare bones so we can start really getting feedback. And then I think two, three months after that, we should be in a, a really solid place. You make me want to plan an event. <laughs> um, I, I'm serious. It sounds like a lot of fun to, to play. I've planned events before, but like this sounds like an incredible system to be working with. We did our entire wedding ourselves. My wife and I came from, from Israel. We were here and she came two weeks before the wedding date. She like didn't even have shoes that fit her. <laughs> it was amazing. Wow. Um, but I remember planning the whole thing and thinking this is completely insane. Like we were just idiots for trying. But this it's is hard. It's, a, it's a very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to do. And, and when you're a planner, they're planning five or six simultaneous wow. events each month. So um, that's that's really it. we we want to be a central command for the planner, and and then work with with vendors and photographers and florists etc. to help them have a more active role in in the organization from their side of things. So. Uh, to take into account the work that they need to do before the event on their side. It's a beautiful thing. It's great. I'll be excited to keep up to date on this. This is exciting. So <laughs> as, you, as you, you're about to launch, so as you're approaching that, I'm curious, what, what does pricing look like? How do you decide how to price something like this before it's actually in market? So I love that question because there's no answer to that. Like, uh, <laughs> in all honesty, Arbitrary. We we made it up. No. <laughs> the we get back to to talking to planners. So what we did every step of the way is everyone on the team had ideas, and every idea gets vetted by about ten different planners in a one-on-one -on -one call, pretty much like like our discussion today. And we we basically drill down into any ideas. And we did this. We did that with pricing as well. And so we looked at. Who they compared us to and they compared us not to some of the 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 event planning software that's out there today where where the starting price point is 39 dollars and they try and squeeze up to 150 dollars out of you because of listings and upsells and and artificial limitations they compared us to project management tools like slack and trello and asana and so we thought fine let's price ourselves per user like Trello and Asana, and because that that fits how our our customers see us. That's amazing. Oh, I love this. Okay, so as you're working on your next startup on on Timebase, uh, you have the opportunity again, I imagine, to approach VCs and consider that approach to getting funding for this product. So, what specifically? makes you not go that route? Sure. There's a number of calculations, but my team and I at this point, we, we've agreed that we want to, like we did with Mad Mimi, we want to work on our own terms. And the moment you take VC funding, there's a few really important calculations that the VC makes. And it, it, it changes the way you have to run your company. And so they often, they often, VCs will often talk about high growth because growth is growth drives value and value gets them a return on their investment. But it's the sense of urgency in a VC that becomes really, really difficult for a lot of companies to, to, to survive. And they'd rather your company dies so they can free up themselves off your board and get on a different board than let you take your time to succeed. So the moment you take VC funding, you're up against a the clock. They, they have eight years left to 10 years before they need to make a huge return. And so the VC gives you enough money to increase your value with the full expectation that you're going to be fundraising again in six months to a year. And the next VCs are going to do that. And so you basically either become a, a unicorn or the VC is going to actually want you to die. And I don't think that's healthy. I, I think building a, what they dismissively consider a lifestyle business. I think there's nothing wrong with that. You, you can achieve amazing success building a company that sells for 10 million to a hundred million dollars. I mean, like who cares? That's amazing. But the moment you take that VC money, you owe them a hundred million dollar company with a ticking clock. Wow. 
that makes sense that uh that would be that would be a little bit difficult so at what point does what what what's different about the vc piece versus the approach that you took which was getting acquired we i don't think we ever thought so at one point we discussed my brother and i with mad mimi we discussed taking VC money. And we, we had, once we were doing very well, once we had revenue in the millions, we were getting a lot of interest from different VCs. And we sat down and we said, okay, well, if we took $10 million or $15 million, would you know how to spend it? And the answer was, well, you do what MailChimp and Constant Contact do, which is have a $300 cost per acquisition and then just spend money with the assumption that for every $300, you're going to get a, a $30 customer. Like that's, that's what they do. And that's their calculus, but they're, they're, it wasn't the lifestyle that we wanted. We didn't want to spend just $50,000 every month chasing new users and, and going head to head with, with companies that had the staff and the resource, we'd have to hire new teams for it. And so we said, you know what, we're happy with our, our, slow relative to what a VC would want our slow growth, but actually enjoying our work. And that isn't for everyone. A lot of people want to build their unicorn. I, I have friends in San Francisco who are like, they wouldn't be interested in it if they didn't have that pressure and that, that growth speed. And, and that's amazing for them. But it just, it wasn't our character. I think possibly because we didn't have business backgrounds, we were, we were winging it all the way through. I mean, I, I'm still winging it. So on the other side of that coin, I guess, is what, 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 what are the benefits of, of being acquired by GoDaddy and, and even taking VC money from the right VCs that, albeit they all are going to have a clock of some sort, what, what's sure. like the, the green side of that pasture? I realize I didn't properly answer your previous question. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the, so the, the, the acquisition, we'll start with the acquisition of GoDaddy and then I'll talk about good reasons to take VC money. The... The GoDaddy acquisition came at an amazing time. It came at a time where we were saying, okay, what, what do we want from life? Do we want to keep doing this? Do we want to see Mad Mimi become the best product it could be? Uh, do we want to grow at all costs? Or do we want to sell out and, and go sit on the beach? And in the end, GoDaddy, when they approached us, it was like, oh, here's another option. We can, we can, sell and and take a lot of amazing reward and upside and 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 get that that reward for the hard work we've been putting in and we can also see our our amazing company grow bigger than we could do ourselves leveraging GoDaddy's incredible resources so it was kind of like the perfect the perfect thing it was an acquisition that would actually allow other people who who could now execute better than we could at that scale so when it comes to VCs, there, there's a number of, of good reasons to take VC money. One is when your company can't actually reach its potential without a large, a large amount of money, which like a lot of consumer facing products, you need to grow really, really fast in order for it to actually ever work out. And so it's a reasonable bet to take with a VC. Um, Sometimes the VCs are, the, are, are in the right industry and can provide incredible guidance and connections, especially when you're talking about enterprise software. And other times you just have a great idea and a great team and not enough capital to, to really bring it to life or bring it to its full potential. And a VC can do that. But any VC deal is a deal with the devil and VCs will be the first people to tell you this, that it comes with some serious strings, but if that's the path for that kind of idea, then, then for sure, you, I, I'm sure most people know Y Combinator, which is an incredible accelerator out there in San Francisco. And you look at companies like Airbnb that raised a ton of money, and then you look at, at Wufu, who they both went through Y Combinator, and Wufu never raised any money outside of Y Combinator's uh, stuff and they're just very different companies. Airbnb only works when it's at scale. It only works when you have every apartment in New York listed on there and, and people all over the world. 
Wufu was like Mad Me. They did web forms, forms that you could embed on your website. And they were never going to be a billion dollar company, but they sold, I don't know, something like $50 million, which was a perfect return for Y Combinator. But had they raised, I believe, I don't know them at all, but I believe had a company like that raised $2 million or $10 million, they would have failed entirely because mm -hmm. I don't think you can sell web forms at the pace that you would need to at the price points. And you also need, you also need a, a, a price point that you can, that, that isn't a $10 or a $20 a month price point for something like web forms. So just depends on the company as well. That is, that is incredible insight. I feel like we've, we've really um, hit on a lot of pieces that are very fascinating and very informative. Uh, I have one last question, um, which is a personal question because we just moved to Israel and I'd love to know years ago when you did it, uh, what drove you to make that move and how has it impacted your work either in a positive way or a negative way? I've been a Zionist for, since I was a child. I, I've, so you can't get away from that. Most people who make Aliyah, you have to be a Zionist uh, to some degree uh, for all whatever people's connotation of that word is. I'm a Zionist and, and I've always wanted to live in Israel. And at the time when we moved, I was living in Hawaii and, and quite frankly, I was loving it. <laughs> but I felt, so I was, I was about to, like GoDaddy Go had, had basically now committed. And I was thinking, you know what? Like, I wanna change. My nieces and nephews are all here. My brother was here in Jerusalem. He's been here for five years longer than me. And my parents were discussing moving to, to Jerusalem. And I thought, yeah, fine, the timing is right. Uh, my lease was up in my apartment in Hawaii and my choices were find another apartment in Hawaii, go back to New York, which is something my wife and I had been discussing, or say, fine, let's, let's go to Israel, spend more time with family and launch another business. And so I, I, Hawaii is amazing, but I, I was also hoping that, that the startup nation would, would light a bit of a fire under me as well. And how, how has it worked out so far? <laughs> it's, been, it's been amazing and tough, and I really like it here, though. The, the business I launched when I moved here, Teacup Analytics, it didn't work out, but such is life with startups. And uh, it was through Teacup where I met Tim and thus connected with you. I, but I learned a ton starting it. The, the cool thing about Israel, especially when launching a startup, is that the kind of like the US, there is a culture that embraces risk here. And it's not a problem to fail and try and fail and try. And everyone you meet is, is rooting for you. Everyone you meet here is rooting for another Israeli success story. And it means that when you try something that doesn't work out, it doesn't mean you're a failure. It just means like, congratulations, you have another opportunity to try something else. And I think that's pervasive here. And so even though I still work from home, even though I, I generally work with a customer base that's, that's outside of Israel, you can't get away from that energy, especially in Tel Aviv where I live. Plus, plus I'm still by the beach. Amazing. Yes, I know you love you love the surfing world. So at some point, I'm going to have to learn more about that. Um, but today, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. This was fascinating, informative. I learned a lot. And I know everybody listening is going to enjoy this one. So thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to me ramble. Isn't he great? You can hear the smile in his voice. Just makes you want to be best friends with him. No wonder he's so great at customer service, right? Let's recap. Dean and his brother Gary started off in the service world waiting tables, but unlike many of us, they used that experience as an opportunity to discover greatness that would later transform how they ran their business. As starving artists, they set out to build a platform for their own, raised money from friends and family only to fail and be left with nothing, that is, except for a functioning email platform. Instead of raising more money, they cut costs and invested themselves into the product. 
passionately driving incredible customer experiences by literally staying up until all hours of the night. Priced right for their micro customers, with simple features but with powered by Mad Mimi at the bottom of every email. As their customers grew, so did they, until one day they caught the attention of investors. Despite the attraction of investment, they turned down an early VC fund because they didn't want to sell their soul, and they don't regret it. With VC money comes a whole lot of responsibilities and commitments, and it was the silly culture that they were able to maintain that was the source of their growth. As an example, one of the biggest moments in their growth was when Seth Godin shared Dean's tweet saying 9 out of 10 cats prefer Mad Mimi. GoDaddy came along and offered them the best of both worlds, the ability to see Mad Mimi grow beyond their limits while still allowing them to be at the helm. But GoDaddy was the challenge. It was a completely different culture. Where Dean and Gary had invested tremendously in building an empathetic support team, GoDaddy's support would take a lot of time to be able to maintain that level of quality. It was Dean's love for people that drove growth. As he said, you can't outsource empathetic customer support. So he attracted customer support agents from his most loyal customer base, people who could truly understand where their customer was coming from and what they were going through. Their approach to training reflected what they had experienced in New York City as waiters. Number one, train in bite-sized pieces slowly over time. Number two, give the support reps autonomy to give discounts and solve the customer problems themselves. And number three, he even allowed them to send rude people directly to himself so that the team could enjoy their work experience. And the benefit of that was that furious customers often got better service by the head of the company and other times they needed to fire an abusive customer. Do you see the secret yet? It's humility. A focus on serving the other to a degree that even what many would consider a sacrifice became a form of reward for them. Their ability to continuously choose a positive mindset, even waking up all hours of the night to celebrate that a customer needed help, how could they not win? It's that humility that is going to drive success at Timebase as well. Instead of dictating what the customer needs, like highly trained product managers, they know how to start. To start with empathy and ask, what is the hardest part of your job? And now let's build for that. It's no wonder that Dean loves Israeli culture. As he said, here, risk is embraced. It's okay to try and fail. Everyone is rooting for you. When you try something that doesn't work out, congrats. You just gained an opportunity to try something else. I am so thankful to all of you for helping spread the word and story about yet another incredible person. There's more where this came from. If you're enjoying these stories, the best way to say thanks is to subscribe, share them with friends, and go into iTunes and rate us five stars. You can follow me at Noah Omri Levin on LinkedIn and Instagram. This is Digital Marketing Life.